Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Our guest today on TBA Now is Dr. Ilona Goldfarb. She is a compassionate, highly empathic human whose professional life has led her to provide direct prenatal, delivery, and postpartum care to women with high-risk factors in their pregnancy. She's also a first-generation American Jew with a life filled with amazing, timely stories about freedom and joy. Come listen to a true Gutenishuma, a good soul. Dr. Ilona Goldfarb is one of the shining lights here at Temple Beth Avodah. And you, if you know her, you would know that by her radiance of her smile. And if you don't know her, then I think in the course of this uh, podcast, um, you will find out what a good neshama, what a, what a good soul she truly is. Um, Ilona, welcome to TBA Now. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I'm excited too. Typically, what I like to do as we um, enter into the the heart of the podcast is to ask about how you got uh, to Temple Beth Avodah. And I realize as I ask that, there's kind of a two-part, there are two parts to that. Let's start with the, the more contemporary, how you found the temple and how you ended up here with your kids and your husband. I'm happy to share this story. So... Um, my husband, Jeremy, and I met in college, and actually, it was really our connection to Judaism that brought us together, and we we call ourselves Jewish Summer Camp Jews, and um, we have such a common experience of JCC and Jewish Summer Camp and music and Jewish youth group, and when we got to college, we sort of started to fancy ourselves more grown-ups and really were searching to find a connection with the synagogue, even though we were just college students. And we used to go, we called it shul shopping. And we would go on Friday nights in search of a Shabbat service and a rabbi and an environment that sort of spoke to us and brought us back to our camp Shabbat days. It's a very mature thing to do. Right? It was. Now thinking back, I mean, wow. But we would go and our... Jewish luck, we always landed on Tot Shabbat, you know, like this is before the internet, before you could look up the schedule of temples, you just show up on Friday night and man, was it always Tot Shabbat every time we showed up to a different shul. And, uh, and then we would leave and say, well, that wasn't quite exactly what we were looking for. And so, and so on and so forth. But we, we did find wonderful Jewish connection. And we were in Los Angeles at the time at UCLA through a, a program called Havarat Noar, which was um, a, a way for us to participate with Jewish youth, ninth and 10th graders in LA. And we were Hebrew school teachers and went on these wonderful Shabbat tones. So we were able to satisfy our need for Shabbat, for sure. Were you the sort of the outlying super Jews of your families? Yes. So, you know, I think we were the super Jew of our family individually. 
for me, certainly uh, my family having, having come from the former Soviet Union in the 70s, where the fam- we knew very strongly that we were Jewish and felt a strong kinship and connection, but knew very, very little about the religion or the traditions, except for what my you know, grandmother and great-grandmother did in secret. But I came, when we came to America, my parents sent me to the JCC summer camp for all summer. And basically everything I know about Judaism, I learned at the JCC. And I would come home and Shabbat and teach them the blessings and teach them the songs, um, along with all the 1970s music that all the hippies that were running JCC camps were teaching all the kids. Um, And that was all tied up in Judaism for me as well. So it definitely was the Jew, the the head Jew of the the family. Got it. Got it. And so uh, you were hunting when you were on the West Coast, uh, looking for a Jewish home. And then... And then we we moved to Boston, you know, fast forward a million years later, we moved to Boston, Jonah, our son was three, and our daughter, Misha, was just a baby. And just as we kind of got our feet on the ground living on the East Coast, figuring our way out, we started again in earnest looking for a shul. And now our lens was, I guess, now more geared towards Tat Shabbat as we were thinking about our son and and getting engaged with Sunday school and Hebrew school. And I remember we came for high holidays to the family service, the Yom Kippur service um, with you as leading it. And I remember, you know, we walked in with our kids and we walked out and said, this is it. We finally found the spirit and the the space and the spirit spirituality that we were looking for. This time, of course, with our children, but really, it really encompassed everything that we were looking for, even when we were in college. And I think it was one of those years where Sunday school and consecration was, you know, right after the high holidays. And so we hadn't even had a chance to sort of call uh, Becky and sign up yet, but we ended up showing up on the consecration Friday and like running up to the Bema and saying, our son Jonah's going to come to Sunday school too. And they were like, no problem. We'll write his name on a little Torah. And, you know, up he went to, to get his little Torah and we were in. I feel uh, so lucky that uh, that you found us because your participation in so many ways, uh, which we'll touch on a little bit later, but you know, you you didn't come in and stay on the periphery. You really jumped in, uh, all four of you, actually. And uh, that's it's such a huge difference. The notion of holding on to this identity as a Jew, clearly your folks send you to a JCC. They want you to absorb this. Is there ever a sense where you feel there's a tension between what you want to do as a Jew and what the rest of your family wants to do? It's very interesting as, you know, a first child of immigrant parents, we came to this country and my parents made tremendous just sacrifices that I cannot even conceive of um, to create a world for me that was free and clear and open. They came here with me in tow and the arrangement, the unspoken arrangement was that they were going to clear my path. Uh, but I was going to have to do my part too. And as the firstborn child, that meant really figuring out my own way 
and and figuring out what I wanted to do. And they created an environment where Judaism was available to me. And once I started running on that path, they followed me mm. um, and really allowed me to to lead. So they, you know, whenever I would come home and want to teach them the new blessings, they would try to learn and sing along. Whenever I wanted to do Passover and explain what a Seder was, they wanted to you know, read along and learn. So, you know, there, there really wasn't a conflict. The interesting time was, or the interesting conversations were oftentimes with my grandmother, my grandparents, who were very, very proud to be Jewish, but were very scared to show the Judaism outwardly. And I was growing up in, in the 80s and 90s where I wanted to wear my big Jewish star and my high and my Israeli army shirt. And I wanted to show my pride and my Jewish identity very outwardly. And my, for my grandparents, they knew the very real hazards and dangers of people knowing you were Jewish. And that fear that they lived with wasn't alleviated by being in America where I thought we were safe and I couldn't really understand what what they were so worried about. But they always worried. They always wanted me to put hide the Jewish star, not mm-hmm. not be so not be so visible with it. Let's take a step back. So you come to this country with your parents and grandparents at the same time? We came just with my parents, um, with the hope that my grandparents would come would follow us. And and thankfully, they did just two years later. But at the time that my parents left was uh, October of 1979. They had me in tow as a four-year-old, a complete albatross around their neck. I cannot, as a mother now, imagine the difficulties uh, and the extra challenge that this whole experience was having a child with them. But they left not really knowing or having any guarantees that they would ever be reunited with their loved ones, which is of just a tremendous uh, burden to carry and sacrifice to make. But they did that for me. If I were to ask your parents, who are really lovely human beings, and we've been able to meet them on a variety of high holy days, and other times they've come to visit. Um, if I asked your parents, why did you emigrate? What do you think they would answer? They would, they would have very similar answers, um, but also they came to their wishes to leave the former Soviet Union and come to America separately. They, each of them, as young people, even before they met, wanted this. Um, my, my father was studying electrical engineering, and he was a very, very good student and um, wanted to pursue science in every way possible. And his work and his ability to progress through academia or just in general in the world was so limited by being Jewish. He read all the papers that were coming out of America, out of the scientific journals, and dreamed of going there, you know, of being there with those scientists and, and being able to be seen for his merits and and not just simply because of his religion. And my mom, who was also very, very educated, she lived a much different life than my father because my grandfather was a little bit more risk prone to taking risks. He was willing to do a lot of 
kind of black market things, behind the scenes things so that his mm-hmm. family could have more. And so my my mother grew up in a house where they had nice curtains on the inside, but they had to hide them because if your neighbors saw them, they might tell someone or they had nice clothes, they had nice dresses, things that my grandfather would be able to barter for or get when he went away on different trips. So they grew up having things, but always being very, very afraid that every time he walked out of the door, that he wouldn't come back. Wow. That he would be captured somehow, you know, and that and that was the reality that they lived with, that people they knew just disappeared or were taken away or were thrown in jail and no recourse. And that's the end of that. And so they they lived in this tension of having things, which was a lot more than a lot of people had, but always mm-hmm. living in fear every time he left. And even on the train, if they were going somewhere, if he and he, my grandfather was a very funny, funny guy. If he saw someone selling hot rolls somewhere, he would hop off a moving train buy a roll, run alongside the train and jump back on because, you know, he had to have it. Um, but that would, you know, that was also something every time the train stopped and he got off, they were worried he wouldn't get back on or that, you know, he would get captured and taken well, away. It's a heck of a way to live. It's a, it's terrifying. It's yeah. terrifying. And so my, my mom always had this feeling like she didn't want to raise another family like this with this kind of fear um, and wanted a place again where you could get, you could achieve a beautiful life on your merits, on your hard work without fear that you were just going to disappear someday or your loved one was going to get taken away to jail. They both sort of grew up with this dream that they would go somewhere where their children didn't have to live with this fear and live with not being able to be judged on your merits. You know, as you describe this, Ilona, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of the Jewish experience of repression. Uh, in the Soviet Union and what daily life could be like and the the, the extraordinary extent to which uh, anti official uh, sanctioned anti-Semitism um, limited people um, like your dad in terms of something that would benefit the state itself, right? That the, you, you would want a brilliant scientist to be able to achieve everything and to be able to teach your students. And yet, this is always one of the things um, about authoritarian anti-Semitism, which it, besides the obvious, that it doesn't make sense as a, you know, Jews are evil thing. But on the practical level, it doesn't make sense because by limiting Jewish people, you limit the growth of the culture. Um, And that hate gets in the way to that extent and is so I mean, anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union was part of the very fabric uh, of, from Lenin on, uh, of how the state uh, treated Jews. The fact that your parents from these perspectives who felt like because they were Jewish, they could not express themselves fully as human beings. I, I wonder how that played out when you arrived in the States. How did did your parents speak English when they arrived? This is fascinating to me. Um, My parents did not speak English. Um, my, My mom studied French in school. My grandmother had wanted her to study English when that became available, but that meant she would have had to abandon all of her classmates from kindergarten on, and she didn't want to make that switch and Mm -hmm. stayed with French. Um, They did not speak English at all. But when we came to America, 
We came as Jewish refugees with support from the refugee agencies at the time. So the Jewish Community Center, the Jewish Federation, the various HIAS and the various organizations that were in place that you guys might remember from the 1970s and 80s, you know, free Soviet Jewry and different synagogues would sponsor families. And that's the, we, we are the family. We are the family that you guys uh, went and picketed for and, and, and helped to bring. And they did not speak any English, but they were both college educated and so ready to learn. They, they came, they took an intensive English class and almost immediately started looking for work and started working in the world and interacting with English-speaking people everywhere. And just, they learned, they learned so, so quickly. How long did it take for your dad to actually, I mean, what was, what, what was his first job and how did he end up getting back to what he was trained to be? My parents, they they both, because of their credentials mm. and some support from you know, the, the Jewish organizations on the ground that helped with the creation of resumes based on these credentials, they, they were both really able to start working in their respective fields. So my father went into electrical engineering wow. right away. And what was amazing about science is that it's a universal language. So even if your English isn't perfect and that took time, you can speak the language of electrical engineering through figures, through numbers. Math is math. Exactly. Math is math. And uh, my mother had studied telecommunications, which was a new Mm. field, and went on an interview to do computer programming with Levi Strauss and company. And interesting. Sort of low level kind of. Yeah, work. exactly. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, she she will say this as well, that the interview was challenging. I mean, language was still not fluent, but the interviewer could see something about my mom's energy and life force and her capabilities and took a chance. And my mom ended up having a an extremely successful career uh, at Levi Strauss for more than 25 years, you know, moving up through all the the corporate ladder from uh, programming up to, you know, very, very high level business analysis. For both of them, I think because of their education, which was something that my grandparents valued above everything else, and they were young and they were energetic. And I think you know, they were really able to bring their credentials and and do the work that they could do. When you all came to America, were you sort of in a enclave of fellow Russian Jews? So my parents had a dream of coming to San Francisco. And I think the reason fundamentally for this dream was twofold. One, they had seen a postcard of the Golden Gate Bridge and the San Francisco skyline behind it and said, yeah, that is that's so romantic. where we want to go. Yes, that's <laughs> beautiful. And then two, you know, my father had read a lot of papers 
out of UC Berkeley. And so they'd gotten a hold of a map and they saw, you know, saw that those two places were close to each other. And so there was this dream of going there. Of course, uh, during the immigration process, we spent some time in Vienna and then in Rome as as Russian immigrants at that time did, trying to change our papers and documents from going to Israel, which was our way out of Russia initially, and instead coming to America. And you had to have somebody who would sponsor you and an an agency or a synagogue or or a group that was also willing to sponsor you. And so, you know, people from from this immigrant cohort were going to, we got Baltimore, we got Atlanta, we got Cincinnati, you know, people were going to wherever they were going to go. And my parents kept waiting, waiting. They really wanted San Francisco. And finally, an organization in Oakland, California came available. And so they looked on the map and they looked on the map and said, okay, that's close. Oakland is close. So we landed in Oakland, which at the time and where we were where we started was a really, really rough part of Oakland. If anybody's been in Oakland, we were on off of MacArthur Avenue, which is a really, really down and out spot. But we, you know, that's where we landed in, in at first in a little motel that my mom still has nightmares from. But every every 10 years or so, we go back and visit the motel and see where, it's we, still there. where we started. It's still there. It's still, still there. Still run down. Yes, still just just terrible, but it's still there, and we make a stop. So uh, we landed in in Oakland, and soon my my parents found an apartment building, an apartment for us to rent, and we got really lucky. The house super was a Polish man who spoke a little Russian, and so we got to know him, and through that figured out that there were a lot of Russian immigrants there. And so we quickly found a lot of families, just like us who were, you know, new and had just come within the year, had children my age and, and older and younger. And it was a wonderful community that that really stuck together for, for many, many years. And as uh, people came, because they knew your family, then they start I'm sure the, the network, if, if you could just describe sort of how that whole immigrant thing works and the hierarchy of people and how it, yeah, yes, how you so and who, who's coming over for dinner and what relatives and whose relatives, whose relatives. Yeah. So, the, I mean, there was a big family. When, and whenever you say you have a big family, you have to say Kinahora, you know, because thank Kinahora. <laughs> and um, the... My, my parents came first, and I was a small child. But soon, two years later, my parents were able to sponsor my grandparents, my mother's parents, and my aunt, my mother's sister, and her husband, and their baby, my cousin. And then it was sort of every couple years, every two to four years, it was my grandmother's brother and his family, and, the, and then the other brother and his family, and then my grandfather's sister and her family. And then, you know, every few years, another whole subset of the family would come and and join the enclave in San Francisco, which was fascinating because uh, back home, home, wherever the home was, everybody lived pretty spread apart across the continent. But now here, here, everybody was back together again, which was very interesting. We're not talking like within a 
eight-month period. We're, we're talking really over years. Years, years, decades. And did your parents become the matriarch and patriarch of the family in that? Or was that sort of, would that have been their title regardless? Or because of their experience and success, did they kind of become the the people to go to? Yes. I, you know, I think it's confounded by the fact that they were the ones that went first, but of course they went first because they were the people who would go first, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's, that's absolutely true though. My, for, for years and years and years, the family members and cousins and would come and, um, you know, my parents would help them get on their feet and help them figure out how to find jobs, how to, you know, use their credentials to the best possible way. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that you picked up English pretty quickly just in the way that kids pick up watching Sesame Street or... I don't remember a time of not being able to communicate. Um, and I think that I just got so lucky with all of... The whole journey was lucky for me. Difficult for my parents it would be an understatement. But lucky for me, being four years old, I think I just fell right into that pocket where <laughs> I don't remember anything bad. I only remember liking my first grade teacher. I don't remember not understanding or being separated from my parents, which would have been a terrible trauma for my mom to leave me for the first time in someone's care so she could go and learn to speak English and go to work. But I don't have any of those memories. I think it just fell right into that crack of where you don't remember things. Yeah, it's um, so pretty I'm perfect. It's pretty perfect. Yeah. You know, you, you've mentioned a few times about sort of the, the extent of the, the hardship for your parents. Could you, would you be comfortable just sharing your sense of that? And, and when you talk about the kind of significant sacrifice, what, what did that look like for them as you reflect on it? My mother in particular was so close with her family. My, my grandparents and my aunt, they were so close knit and, and everything that up until the point where my mom and dad left the Soviet Union, everything had been done as a family. My grandfather took care of a lot of things by, you know, offering bribes, having connections, knowing people. He was in the background taking care of a lot of things all the time, and my grandmother as well. And so to just leave the family that they were so, so, so close with and recognize that they might not see them again. They really, really didn't know yeah. what the future would hold. And in this day and age, we love to plan. We want to know what's going to happen in an hour, next week, next weekend. And here they, these two young people with their four-year-old child were leaving the only home they knew, the only support network they ever had to a total unknown. You know, and and that was for our younger listeners. You know, there's no internet, there's no cell phones. You're gonna, you know, how are you gonna stay connected? How are you gonna ever be with your loved ones again? Was was a big question. And you know, at the time in the 70s, mm -hmm. when you know my, when my parents were married in 1974, they applied for a visa right away. That was. Uh, you know, point number one to, and they, ha they could apply for a visa to 
Israel. That was the only option at the time. And so they applied. And the way that everything worked in the former Soviet Union is you came, you filled out a form, no one told you anything. And then five years to the day, they got a letter in the mail that said, this is your date to leave and you have 30 days to empty your apartment. Five years. Yeah. No word, no updates, you know, regarding updates, there aren't any. And then all of a sudden you have 30 days to empty out your apartment, sell everything you own, say goodbye to everyone you love, and you're out the door and you have no idea where you're going. And then wow. other, and then at the same time, people you know, you know, there could be retaliation, people lose their jobs, people who are affiliated with you because you're sort of seen as a traitor at the time. So you don't know what's going to happen to your family that you leave behind. Certainly anything you might have been waiting for, upgrade to another apartment or a new position, all that is uh, completely wiped away once you apply for the visa. Yep, totally, totally wiped away. And not only for you, but maybe for your close family members as well. So, you know, that was terrifying. But they, my parents had a, a lot of hope. Um, they, and I think my being alive gave them that need to sort of say, we, we have to do this. We cannot stay here. We have to bring this child and future children to a new place, a better place. And they, they, I think they saw no way, there was no way they were going to stay. So I think that that energy was persistent for them both, even as they were terrified. And then as many Russian Jews who left in the 70s, you know, you left with a visa in your hand for Israel, but they knew they wanted to come to America. They they always knew and through connections and through back channels and um, they they understood that there was there were going to be these refugee agents at the first port of entry, which was Vienna, and they were going to help us. But my, my parents were saying that some families didn't know, and they arrive in Vienna, and they were faced with this decision, do you keep going on to Israel, or do you stay here now to this un- indefinite kind of waiting area and potential for America? And they were saying that you know families were moving their luggage from one pile to another, trying to make this decision in real time. My grandparents came just two years after. and also made tremendous sacrifices. I mean, in the former Soviet Union, my grandparents were, they were the leaders of the family. They were the ones who were taking care of everything. They were well-known. They were established. And they came to America. They were in their 60s. There really wasn't a pathway or an avenue for them to reestablish themselves. My parents were in their 20s and 30s, and they were just starting their career. And so every, all, the whole focus, everybody's energy was to get these people on their feet and then my generation next. And so my grandparents really gave away everything that they had built just to be, just to support sort of this next generation. Well, I wondered, because your, your grandfather was such a big shot, right? I mean, he had this... I mean, it's such a classically, it's right out of a, 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 you know, a Russian novel in terms of, you know, work in the black market and knowing this one, who knows that one, who can help you with this one, who can sneak you that. And as you described him, you know, sort of a 
living sort of the Soviet outlaw life, you know, working the system. And some of those skills might be transferable. But, you know, as you said, given the fact that he was in his 60s, which puts him on the totem pole, you know, at the very bottom. And um, it must have been a well, tell us, how hard of a transition was it for him particularly? It was a really hard transition for him. He wanted desperately to be useful. Uh, that was so important to him. So he would still, he would be out out there talking to people. He was always trying to wheel and deal and make something happen. Um, he never stopped trying to do that. Obviously, in America, there were different restrictions and limitations, but he wanted to work. My parents found him a job as a house soup in a, a supervisor in a big building in downtown San Francisco. And my grandfather was the kind of person who could, he wasn't afraid of trying things. He didn't have to be good at something to do it. You know, he mm -hmm. was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Sure. You know, like someone who's never done any building maintenance was going to become a house soup. It was going to be yeah. my, my grandfather. And so he would go and do a little this, a little that. And then in the evening time after the building was shut down, my mom and my dad and my aunt and my uncle would go and try to fix whatever problems actually were, you know, <laughs> there that needed fixing that, you know, he couldn't do or didn't know how to do. But he was so he loved people and loved to be, you know, useful and be in the mix. Whereas my, my grandmother was much more, you know, inwardly focused into the family and she turned all of her energy towards, you know, cooking and caring for the grandchildren. And she was a huge support. The, the only way that my parents could have kept working and doing the things they were doing and mm. my aunt and uncle was because my grandmother was there holding up the pieces, uh, you know, supporting the children. When you went to school, did your lunchbox look different than somebody else's lunchbox? Yeah, we always joke around about this. This is a funny story. So when my, <laughs> speaking of Judaism in general and just sort of the clashes that, that we experience, but my, uh, when we moved from Oakland to San Francisco, my mom was looking for a school for me. And one of the schools was a Jewish day school, but I think it was run by Chabad. I'm, I'm not sure exactly, you know, the mm -hmm. origin story there, but we came to visit the school. A lot of Russian immigrants were sending their kids there and right. we came to look at the school. We'd been in there, you know, an hour and a half, and then it was lunchtime and one of the Russian kids takes out their sandwich, which is like Russian salami, which, if you don't know, definitely has pork in it. And <laughs> the um, the rabbi or whoever was in charge of the classroom snatched the sandwich away and threw it away because, of course, it wasn't kosher. And my mom was like, we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> We were out of there so fast. She's like, they took food from a child. Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about going against every, not just a general maternal thing, but particularly anyone that grew up in the Soviet Union. So you don't take, you don't throw food away. You don't throw food away. Are you crazy? No, 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 no. Exactly. So many things. Yeah. So we were out of there real quick. That was so funny. Yeah. Ilona, Passover is coming, and I know you have a story you've told us before that is so great, 
it's so great that I'd like you to tell it again. Absolutely. So this was our very first Passover in America. And so we arrived, we were new, new, new in October. And so you can imagine, you know, the time between October and and Passover is pretty short. Um, My parents were just learning English. We were just getting our feet on the ground. And we had um, been adopted by a temple, Temple Isaiah in Lafayette, California. And they had a really robust Havara system. One particular Havara adopted this new, you know, Russian immigrant family. And this Havara, had, they, they had a really wonderful connection. They had a lot of kids my age, and they did a lot of great things together. And one of the things they often did was have a big, big Passover Seder together. So they invited us as a first event to meeting everybody to this Passover Seder. And they sent a letter to my parents, just a little very informal note saying, we'll we're excited to see the three of you at five o'clock. And my parents sort of tried to suss out what it meant, but they could sort of understand the three and the five, and they thought that they we were supposed to come between three and five. So the three of us show up to Passover Seder, no idea what a Passover Seder is, loosely understanding that Passover, you're not supposed to eat bread, and that our grandparents used to go and find some contraband matzah and we would, you know, they would eat fried matzah, but that was the extent of understanding what this holiday was about. So we show up two hours early and the American family that had invited us sort of looking at us and we're looking at them and nobody really- No one really, speaks Russian. No, no one, one speaks <laughs> Russian. We don't really speak English yet. And, um, but you can see and you can feel the vibe. Everyone- knows what it's like two hours before you're going to host a Seder (laughs) for like 25 people or 50. And there's a buzz, you know, and they're like, okay, well, you're here now. So just come in, you know, and so we come in and my parents remember this experience as like every family would arrive carrying their folding tables and their folding chairs and the big bowls and the extra plates. And they started creating out of a home, they created this, you know, huge dining room all together. And they had never seen anything like this. I mean, any mm. Jewish celebration or anything that was even remotely Jewish um, was celebrated in secret, small, you know, with the shades drawn quietly, you know, very, very small. And here were just family after family showing up to create this humongous shared table together. And that was such a dramatic scene for my parents to witness from beginning to end. And as they assembled this tables, tables upon tables and tablecloths and plates, and and then, and then people came and sat together for so long and shared the story. Of course, they didn't understand the whole story, but just the the visual and the the smells and the energy of all these families united in this way was forever a memory for my parents. I think that's when they really realized for the first time that they that they had done the right thing, that 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 it was worth it, that they were they they had brought their child and their future children to freedom. I love that story. I mean, the correlation between the fundamental 
cornerstone of the holiday itself, which is celebrating freedom. And that that would happen with that, that theme of the Seder and your parents who, you know, whatever Jewish education they had was not a formal deep education at all. And for them to kind of get that sense of how the freedom they were now achieving was mixed into the way it was being lived by these Jews who they didn't know, but that yet they shared something um, so soulful with. I, I, I just love that and, and love what it did. I, I would assume that that story has had an effect on how you see what it means to live a Jewish life. How do you think that's influenced you and what you do with your family? I think that Passover experience sort of was sewn into my Jewishness. So that Passover has always been a really special marking of the Jewish calendar for me mm -hmm. and for Jeremy. Um, and even when we were, you know, right after college and didn't have a dining table to sit at, we would gather our friends and put a tablecloth on the ground and all sit around on the floor of a table, you know, with the tablecloth on the floor and, and do a Passover Seder with Jewish friends, with our non-Jewish friends, you know, marking this important holiday and this togetherness. And my vision for my children has always been that we gather as Jews together, that Ju Judaism is not just something that you do alone or that you believe in your heart or in your head, but that it's, it's a gathering together and a feeling of belongingness. And that's part of what's so special about Passover is that you're bringing together families and sharing in this tradition that everybody had a little bit of exposure on their own, but now we're coming together and creating something new together, but something that is also the same. And hopefully my kids have had this experience because we have, we've hosted many Passover seders over the years when the kids were little and everybody's running around like crazy and you can't get through even the first part of the seder right. um, all the way up until now when they're um, older and everybody has their parts that they like to read. No, that's my part. Oh yeah, that's your part. This is Misha's part. This is Jonah's part. This is Jeremy's part. Everybody loves their part. And um, who's coming for Passover, you know? We want to see all the people. So that that is a tradition that is is such a positive one. And I hope that my kids will carry their memories from our home into their own homes and keep keep creating that. Yeah, it's really this notion of uh, that you, uh, from your own unique perspective, had to take this ancient tradition, but to really make it happen. Um, as a really on a first generation level. And uh, the fact that it's so precious to you, I think, is underscored by knowing uh, where you've come from and understanding the deep connection that we make when we gather around and, and celebrate something that is so, has such a particularly relevant message from your experience. You know, Ilona, I haven't even mentioned, and I think uh, the time has come to ask you, in the midst of 
all of this, you end up being uh, attracted to medicine. How young were you when you decided you wanted to be a doctor? I feel like I was born with the idea. I don't remember mm. a transition point, but I do always remember people asking me when I was a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was very clear in my mind that I wanted to be a doctor. I don't know where it came from. We don't have, we have a lot of engineers. We have a lot of learned people in our family, but no doctors per se. So I don't know, but that was something that was clear in my mind and it was never confusing. At first I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician and that was maybe because my whole young adult life, I was a camp counselor and, and Hebrew school teacher and my interactions were with children. But when I got to medical school, my instant connection to OBGYN was actually at the tail end of my pediatrics rotation when I ran with the neonatology team to an emergency C-section. And I first felt the excitement of the operating room and saw that there was a pregnant patient. And then moments later, a baby emerged. And then we were supposed to be paying attention to the baby, but I was just fascinated with the mother and what was going on and how that had happened. Mm. How did that, how did that even remotely happen? So that was, that was an instant click for me. Where did you go to med school? I went to medical school at UC Davis, University of California in Davis. Um, and that is um, an amazing medical school for mostly California kids, but it is a place that really taught us how to listen to patients. And one, one of the biggest lessons I learned there, and I teach my medical students now, is that you have a lot of information that you, you need to gather, but the first bunch of information you're going to get is from opening your eyes and your ears when you first walk into the room. And sometimes, you know, your brain is so distracted, you, you have this list of questions you want to start asking, but you when you walk into the room and you see the patient with your eyes and you listen to the sounds in the room and you listen to their voice, you get so much information and you instantly get very, very curious. And then the right questions to ask are going to come to you. You don't have to memorize the list. So you're giving permission for doctors to be humans. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And to listen and to be radically curious and to be humble because people are sharing their most intimate stories with you. Right. You, you are at ground zero of intimacy as an mm -hmm. OBGYN. Mm -hmm. How has your profession changed from the time that you finished your fellowship and started your work? Um, in fact, tell us what the arc of your career has been up to this point, and then I'll ask you how it's changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I started as a general OBGYN because I did my training at Kaiser Hospital in San Francisco. Uh, I did a great general training and felt like I could do everything, could be the jack of all trades. And as I we moved to Boston and I took a wonderful job at Mass General, I realized as I got, you know, my feet on the ground really into practice that my energy and my 
brain were everything was firing on all the cylinders the minute I hit labor and delivery. So, you know, there were parts of of OBGYN practice where you take care of patients through the whole life cycle of their life from adolescence up through elderly. Um, And you can you can take any avenue through there and be a specialist. But I, I had a almost like a calling, I guess, or just a moment of time where I'm like, yes, this is even within OBGYN, my personal gifts, my energy, my brain work the best on labor and delivery. And the more complex the case, the more blood is flowing to my brain and the more I'm, you know, able to really concentrate and use all of my gifts. And so I moved more towards obstetrics and high-risk obstetrics and started doing some research studies. I was particularly interested in um, perinatal infectious disease right around the time of the H1N1 pandemic, Mm. a whole pandemic ago. Nobody remembers that. that one. But that's when I started, you know, recognizing that pregnancy was a unique state and that pregnant patients, even though they were generally healthy, were doing really poorly, particularly with the H1N1 pandemic and where, you know, Mm. the reports were coming out, you know, very, very sick. And I began to, you know, grow more and more interested in why, you know, why is that the case? What's going on? What are, what are the implications of pregnancy on, on illness and healing in general? And then um, at the time, we were also asking pregnant patients who had already taken one flu shot to get take a second flu shot, and people were kind of balking at that. And then I started becoming interested in just pregnant patients' attitudes around vaccination and vaccine uptake. So that uh, has kind of carried me that interest in immunology and infectious disease and patients' attitudes around vaccinations. Um, has stayed with me over many years. I'm assuming that that background over the past few years has been, you've been doing, what have you been doing actually as it relates to that? I mean, it was, it's funny because, you know, H1N1 was a big, big deal. Nobody even remembers about it now. And then, and then it was Zika. Who remembers about that? But Zika was a really big deal in the pregnancy world and in my line of work because we were so worried about mosquito-borne illness that was going to cause birth defects. I mean, and it could possibly also be sexually transmitted. And it was just, it was just absolutely um, horrifying and and such scary reports coming out of South America. And, and so there was a lot of interest around Zika virus and that pandemic. And then briefly, there was measles. I don't know if you guys remember when measles was an outbreak and and we were realizing that all the immunity we thought we had from our childhood um, immunizations maybe wasn't holding holding us in good stead anymore. And what were we going to do about measles if pregnant patients were to become infected? And then all of that, as you pointed out, sort of set up my work so that when COVID hit, it really fell in with everything that I'd already been working on. Um, of course, it blew my mind to smithereens and was way more and continues to be more than I ever imagined that it would be. But, um, but I definitely was in the right place at the right time um, to, be, to take the reins on that, um, particularly in OBGYN and in, at Mass General, where I've had the great 
opportunity to lead our department through um, the COVID pandemic response. How has your own practice, not just what you do, but how has the practice itself changed over the past 20 years? Mm -hmm. The practice of medicine has, I think, gone more and more sort of digital and diagnostics focused where you can do things remotely. But what has not changed and why I continue to feel so connected and passionate is that in obstetrics, you really can't do it remotely. Mm -hmm. You really have to be in the room with the patient. And it's very hands-on. It's very heart open. You can't digitize it. You've got to be present for it. And I really felt that strongly during the pandemic when everything was shutting down and people were staying home. Um, thank you, all the people that stayed home to help prevent the spread. But there were you know, some aspects of medicine that had to continue to be, and yeah. obstetrics was one of those things. You know, you couldn't just shut down the labor and delivery for a while because those pregnant ladies right. there were just kept on coming. And going to work every day and being with the patients and looking after them and reassuring them really brought so much satisfaction and professional fulfillment that I had started to, that had started to crack a little bit mm -hmm. before the pandemic, where I was starting to feel a little bit, is any of this worth anything? I was starting to feel a little broken by the, the, the logistics of medicine. But in this, in the time of COVID, when just showing up was an act of heroism and just yes. being there with the patient in the room, in my mask. I had several patients say to me, thank you so much for being here. And I felt like this is where I am meant to be. Of course I'm here. Was there any point, particularly when it felt like the sky was falling, you know, that between March and May, let's say, where it was just uh, unspeakably frightening, did you ever feel like, what the hell, like, what am I doing? I'm endangering myself or like, where were you at with that? I, I never felt, this is sort of my personality too, um, but I never felt afraid that I was going to get COVID. Hmm. I don't know why. I never, ever felt that fear. I was afraid that I wouldn't know how to take care of someone mm -hmm. who was sick in my care and that, that bad things would happen to them because I didn't know enough. And that was terrifying. Um, but I never felt personally afraid. I don't know. That may just be just a coping mechanism. And that's I'll take it. <laughs> part, I think part of my personality too. I'll tell yeah. I'll tell you a side story about that. But I um I never felt afraid and I went to work every day and we put on our masks and our, and our shields and our N95s. And the most 
afraid I was, was that somebody was going to die alone or die in, and I couldn't save them. Um, and that was, that was very real. That was very, very real. And in obstetrics, we Mm -hmm. don't deal that much with death. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. But that is something that we were really facing like head on and all usually, you know, at a place like mass general, there's so many doctors and so many smart, smart people that if you have a complex case, you pull together your smart people and you sit down in a room together. And that's one of my favorite things about high-risk obstetrics is all the smart people that come to help when you say, hey, guys, I have this sick pregnant lady. People come running. Um, But here we were, you know, we were trying to, I remember having a sick patient in the ICU and there were no ICU beds except for in the neuro ICU, the brain surgery unit, Mm -hmm. but they had my pregnant COVID patient in there and I was there and they were there and they were looking at me and I was looking at them and we were like, what are we going to do? You know, no, there were no, nobody to call, you know, everybody's calling me and I'm staying up all night long reading random papers coming out of China about two patients here and three patients there and what they did. And, you know, we're all, everyone's just doing their best, but that was, that was the most terrifying uh, experience was that we were going to miss something. What are a couple of your general takes on COVID and pregnant women and how it affected them and their fetuses? So the general, the big, big takeaway is that pregnancy and the physiologic changes in the lung tissue and in the heart and in the cardiovascular system, and most importantly, in the immune system, makes pregnant patients more susceptible to severe illness with a Mm. virus like COVID. And that when you compare to other patients who are the same age and same, you know, medical profile, pregnancy is the risk factor that puts people over the edge where you otherwise would have had a pretty bad cold, really not feeling well, really down and out. But in pregnancy, you go right into the intensive care unit with terrible pneumonia need to be intubated. Mm. Getting people to understand that and appreciate and now accept the vaccine has been a very, very interesting sort of second experience. So first was all about, you know, figuring out, is this more dangerous for pregnancy? Okay, it is. Okay, how are we going to treat these people? What, how, what's safe? You know, nothing's been studied in pregnancy. So everything, we're just on the fringe. How do we get people through safely? And the focus is always, always, always on the mother. Um, the fetus will be okay as long as the mother's okay. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's a central tenant. And also a very Jewish sort of medical ethics, Jewish perspective as well. Absolutely. And then the second piece is that vaccines work and the vaccines are are excellent and safe and will are the difference between life and death. And we've seen this now with the subsequent wave since the vaccine that patients, pregnant patients that are vaccinated and boosted are safe. They may get a cold, they may not feel great if they get it, but they're they're not going to land in the hospital. They're going to survive and their baby's going to survive. And so getting people to understand the importance of the vaccine has been a very interesting challenge because there was 
early adopters who were running to get the vaccine, as many of us were. But yes. now the people who are now, today, still unvaccinated are a holdout group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is a really tough group to convince because they are indoctrinated with a lot of misinformation. Yes. And um, that has been the, the sort of the new struggle. And a hard one. Yeah. Really hard one. Ilona, I have loved this opportunity to sit and schmooze with you for this podcast. I, you know, we're always running in so many places at so many times. And um, I love having any moment just to be able to have a hug and just to talk about the good things that um, you do and just how wonderful it is to share this congregation and the love and commitment that we have that is really so much a part of of your lives. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. I do know how busy you are, and it means so much to me that more members of the congregation know uh, what a good nishoma, what, what a great soul that you have. Thank you for your work and your attention to scared, vulnerable women who don't, even if there's no illness or anything else, just the experience of pregnancy can be a little overwhelming at times, uh, both physically, hormonally, and every other way. And your presence as an OBGYN um, brings such a sense of harmony and grace to their lives. And f- I feel so blessed by the fact that you are also a, a an instructor to med students and a mentor to many people in the profession um, about how to do this in a way that is humane and kind and present. All of that to say, Elena, thank you, thank you, thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel so honored to be on this podcast and so grateful for you, Rabbi, for creating the community that Jeremy and I were always dreaming about even before we had kids. It has been a wonderful, wonderful place to raise our family and to raise our family in a Jewish way. I, I, I feel very lucky and fortunate about that. Thank you, Elona. Thank you for your sweet words. Thank you. Thank you. Mm, it was a pleasure. Find all of our episodes on BethAvodah.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonkanaji, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. Mm-hmm.